Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 8 and 9. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Dear Lord, thank you again for your invitation to us to come to worship and not only to know you, but to be known. I was thinking as we prayed for the kids, you've also blessed this church with the joy and care of adults. And you know the hearts and minds and weeks and demands and responsibilities that sit here. And we turn to you for your care and guidance. As we enter into a new series during Lent, we pray that you would make these days that we dedicate to you on the way to Easter fruitful. And not only for us, but for your kingdom. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Um, Something before we start, again, um, welcome this morning. My name is Dean Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. And an encouragement, I know many of you are on the younger side, so you might be like under the age of 80. And it might be hard for you to keep, uh, pay attention. And in this series in particular, you're going to hear narratives about Matthew and Jesus, in Matthew about Jesus. And I'd encourage you, if you want, to use a pen and a pencil and the bulletin to draw. You might want to take the scenes that we, you hear read and draw. You might want to think about what it would be like if Corky or Johnny or and I met Jesus. You might want to give us hair, maybe if we need hair, whatever. But if you're here younger, please feel free to draw or do something else as you listen and pay attention. We typically invite kids to be here from, say, fifth and sixth grade on. And sometimes it's a demand, to be honest, to do that. And so I'm always glad you're here, but feel free to use the time as you can or will to stay engaged. Whatever your age, I used to make this encouragement at our old church, and one of the adults in the room was a really good artist, and we have up in our kitchen cabinets one of the drawings he drew once from Esther. It's a stunning drawing from just pen and a piece of paper about that big, so who knows what might happen here. So, um, When my wife and I were early married, we made the decision to dedicate one night of the week to our chores. You know, you're figuring out your life as a young couple. We wanted to hang out on the weekend because we both had full-time jobs during the week, and we thought, oh, we should do our our chores on a weeknight. And so we made Wednesday night chore night and we delegated the chores out. My my wife typically had sort of the house chores, cleaning the house, and I had the laundry. We didn't have a a washer dryer in our apartment. I had the laundry and the grocery shopping. And my goal was to do all of this in two hours. And so ideally I would go to the laundry, I would try to find four or five side-by-side washers, I would put everything in, push in the coins, and then race to the large 
grocery store called H-E-B, which is a Texas-sized Wegmans, for those of you who've never been in H-E-B. And while the laundry was being done, I was multitasking doing the grocery shopping. My wife went with me once to do the shopping. She said, people are diving out of the way as you go by. And I thought, good, because I'm on the clock. I want to get this stuff done. There's lots of action and movement. If you're following me with the camera, you would have thought, this is an action movie. I'm racing, not speeding, but racing down streets, right turns, taking, had figured out the quickest way from the laundry to the store. Then I'd race to the car with the bags from the store, race home, deliver the bags to my wife. She would typically put stuff away. I'd go back, put clothes in the dryer, go back home and help if I needed to go back. If I did it right, I could pick up dinner and frozen yogurt before the two hours were over. And you could tell I'm still excited about it. <laughs> if I could do all our chores now that way, I would do it. It was boom, 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 breathtaking. But it was focused. Lots of energy, lots of action. We um, sort of begin, but also continue our series for Lent in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at encounters people have with Jesus. We began it on Wednesday night at Ash Wednesday when Johnny looked at an encounter Jesus and the devil have together. And what happens to the devil and how that can relate to us. That was Matthew 4. And this morning we're looking at Matthew 8 and 9. And when Johnny and I, we sort of parsed out the passages and who was preaching when, and I read these chapters, I thought, these are not unlike that night when I would try to get all these things done in a short amount of time. These are breathtaking paragraphs. And so to read Matthew 8 and 9 and decide what will we focus on took some time because there's so much happening. Boom, boom, boom. Today we're going to have just a brief intro into the overall gospel, just to sort of set a context, and then we're going to look briefly at four of the encounters of, that people have with Jesus in Matthew. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up to Matthew 8. Again, that could be a, a real physical Bible, a real virtual Bible. I'd encourage you to bring a Bible particularly to this series. We always have the passages up on screen when they're read. But this series in particular, it would be great for you to have it to look at yourself because we're going to point things out as people have this encounter. What should we know about Matthew as we step into this series? Just a couple overarching themes. First, the Gospel of Matthew was the church, early church's favorite book, this gospel we're reading. It was the most quoted, most copied, most read, and most preached Christian book of the early centuries. That's by the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. This is the favorite book of the early church. That's pretty exciting. In this book, Matthew, who was one of Jesus' disciples, is trying to bridge together two different things. One, he is Jewish, and he has studied and knows the Jewish scriptures that prophesied a Messiah was coming. But as he has been a part of the new church, he is seeing that church spread past and beyond just its Jewish origins. And Gentiles are coming to faith. We believe Matthew wrote this probably in the second half of the first century. So the church, as it spreads around the New Testament, or excuse me, the ancient Roman world, it's spreading not just through Jews, but also into Gentiles. Matthew sees first the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures that Matthew, uh, he's collected the writings of the prophets and this foreshadowing and promise of a Messiah and realizes that's who Jesus is. And he's trying to connect that great news to the Gentile Christian spread of this new young church. So he's over and over again coming back to this idea of fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. That's why there's so many Old Testament quotes throughout Matthew, but especially in the birth narratives, which we often spend time in in December. In that way, one scholar says that Matthew is a link 
that his gospel is a link between early Jewish Christianity and the church which is becoming increasingly broader than that into Gentile Christianity. And as this link, Matthew is particularly interested in answering two questions. First and foremost, really, what's it look like? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Because if he is, that changes everything. So he will be studying and presenting to us his belief, our belief as Christians, that yes, Jesus was the long-awaited for Messiah, sent to save the world. Second, then, Matthew is answering the question, in light of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, what does it mean to be his disciple and to follow him? It's an important question to Matthew because that's what he did. But if you look throughout the book, you'll see he is describing and presenting and sharing just how often Jesus said, hey, this is what it looks like to follow me. Of course, the last two verses of Matthew we know pretty well, where Matthew charges, or takes the words and helps us know Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. So the, the, the caboose of the book are Jesus' words to take what Matthew has taught about and go and spread it and make disciples, which is why we're here. When Matthew was writing, biographical works like this were often grouped thematically around different things, and Matthew's doing the same thing. And so he's crafting his work around a certain set of themes, like Jesus' birth, then some teaching, then in our chapter, some healing and some miracles and other teaching. The particular organizational structure is around five major teaching sections that Matthew has collected. Discourses like the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. We spent some time in that a couple summers ago together. Some think these five sections were meant to parallel the first five books of the Bible, often called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Five books in the Pentateuch, five books in this New Testament about the Messiah and the new life and the new Israel. At the end of each of these teaching sections, Matthew finishes with a simple summary when Jesus had finished these sayings, and then he transitions his narrative. If you have a Bible open, you could look to the end of chapter 7 and see that the section right before what we're going to look at has that kind of saying. When Jesus had finished these sayings and the segue to chapter 8 where we are today. What has struck the crowns at the end of this particular set of teaching at the end of chapter 7 is not only the content of the teaching, but also the authority with which Jesus delivers this content. He's presenting something in a way in a gravitas that they haven't seen before. Like he is the Messiah, like he's different, like he's not just a prophet, but he is the son of God and the son of man. In chapters eight and nine, Matthew builds on this theme of Jesus' authority by showing his power in the miraculous. From chapter eight, verse one, to chapter nine, verse 34, we have nine different miracles with 10 healings in those miracles. Nine different miracles with 10 healings. And again, these verses are breathtaking, like me trying to cram shopping and laundry all into two hours in the downtown Austin neighborhood where we lived. And a brief overview of what Jesus does here and who, who is miracled in these passages would look like this. Jesus heals a leper by touch. Jesus heals the servant girl of a Roman centurion from a distance. He actually never sees that servant girl. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, which begs some fantastic questions. Wait, Jesus was married? Didn't know that. Would love to know who that woman was and hear what Peter was like as a young boy. 
Then not only does he heal Peter's mother-in-law in that house, in that same paragraph, it says lots of other sick people were brought to Jesus and he healed them. Jesus then calms a storm and the disciples. Jesus heals men possessed by demons. Jesus heals a paralytic. Jesus saves a hated sinner. Jesus turns our understanding upside down about sinners and who he has come to save. And then Jesus raises a dead girl, a bleeding woman, a blind man, and a deaf mute in the last few verses of chapter nine. Again, breathtaking. And these miracles all point to answering one of Jesus' questions. Is Jesus the Messiah? And the resounding answer is yes. Because Matthew is linking the healings in this section to the prophecies from Isaiah 53 of how the Messiah, the suffering servant, would take up our affirmities and bear our diseases and bring healing to the world. It's like Matthew has grouped these to shine a spotlight saying, look, this is the Messiah. And again, I wanna focus on just four of these paragraphs and invite you to consider two different things as we walk through these encounters both today and probably through Lent every Sunday. I want you to ask yourself first, which of these encounters would you like to be in or do you feel like you need to be in? Of the four this morning, which one are you like, "Mm, that's the one I most need today? And then secondly, which of these encounters might you pray for someone else you know and love to have with Jesus? And again, you might wanna do that every week from now to Easter because we'll be looking at these encounters till then. Listen for yourself. Dear God, what do you have for me? Where should I be in these encounters? And then also listen for someone else who you love. So first, let's focus on Matthew 8, 23, and 27. This is probably a very familiar passage to many of us. This encounter teaches us, this storm passage, that Jesus is Lord over external pressures and can calm our internal fears. External pressures and internal fears. Here Jesus calms this storm. There have been three healings so far in chapter eight and then teaching on what it costs to follow Jesus right before our paragraph. Jesus then gets into the boat and very specifically, Matthew says, and the disciples followed him. So that verb is used boom, boom, boom. They follow him and they think we're gonna just sail across the sea to the other side where Jesus is gonna do some other great stuff. Pretty exciting to follow Jesus. He's healing people everywhere we turn. But then something happens. A storm comes and the the version you heard read says the storm was furious. Furious. What an interesting word for a storm. It's a real angry storm. You can imagine the waves coming, the wind coming, lightning, thunder. Many of us have been out in storms like this, and you do not want to be on the water in one of these. We often, during the summer, as when my kids were young, would go to Deep Creek Lake. And the kids and I have several stories where we are out in canoes, not too far, but still a couple hard strokes from a safe dock where we had to get off and, and borrowed a dock that was not our own because a furious storm happened to come up on the lake. None of my kids or I was sleeping during this storm. But Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is asleep. But the disciples are scared. Now remember, fully a quarter of the disciples at least are fishermen, professional trained fishermen. They've been on the water and they've been in storms and they've been in boats. They're still scared. 
They wake Jesus up, and he rebukes both the storm and the disciples. He rebukes their faith, their fear, because he's with them. Now, as you heard in Psalm 107, the Israelites believed that only God had power over water. And this is a super unique passage because we get a full look at Jesus' humanity and his divinity. First, he's sleepy. Jesus is sleepy because he's fully human. But he's also divine because when he's awakened from his sleep, he calms the weather like God calms the weather in Psalm 107. Jesus' divinity and humanity on full display. Now, this external reality was real. This wasn't a pretend storm. This was a real storm that threatened to overthrow the boat, put the disciples at risk. We don't know if they could swim. It threatened them physically, but also threatened their sense of faith and rest and trust in God's care. In the other Gospels, we read that what the disciples are intimating to Jesus are not about him being asleep, but does he care? Why are you sleeping? Look at us. We're, in, we're at risk. This external reality begs their and our trust often in God's care and love for us. This external pressure rocks their internal worlds. And as I read this passage this week, I thought of many of us who are facing external pressures. Many of you are currently in different kinds of storms that are producing or could produce internal unrest. Many of you have storms with your work or your finances, with people in your family or extended families. Many of you are wrestling with deferred hope and unmet longings and growing demands. And these storms, just like the storm the disciples are in, can beg our trust and experience of God's love for us. They threaten to overwhelm us, to, to dump our boat, and put us in places where we're not sure we can swim. Jesus' love for us and his power and authority in this encounter teach us that external storms, in those external storms, we can still be at peace. Some of the implication in what Jesus is saying to this disciple is, is you could be sleeping too. Why are you waking me up? I am with you. You are so safe in this storm. This is the safest place in the entire lake is with me in this boat even as it looks externally like there is unmet trouble. You will be okay. So as you look at this encounter, maybe this is the one you need this morning. Dear Jesus, I'm in a boat, and the storm is too much. Would you calm that storm in me first? Whatever is happening to the external pressures. Or again, maybe you can think of someone you love who's in their own particular storm. And you want to pray for them this morning that they would know God's rest, that Jesus would calm their storm. Second encounter, let's look at Matthew 9, 9 to 13. You heard this read as well. This encounter teaches us that Jesus can save anyone, and it's a miracle when he does. This paragraph is a bit of a continuation of our series from a couple weeks ago where we talked about being an extended family and that sometimes this family we said was scandalous and surprising. Embedded in all these physical healings in chapter eight and nine are two particular spiritual healings. The first one is in the first few verses of chapter nine when Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic before he heals his legs. 
But then right after this, we get this story about a tax collector who here is called Levi, but in other gospels we know is actually Matthew himself. Again, remember, Matthew crafted this book and he crafted these miracles together and he put in the middle of those miracles his own conversion. What is Matthew saying about his conversion that it's embedded in the middle of all these miracles? Matthew is a tax collector, sort of like a customs agent who is often seen by his people as a traitor. He's a collaborator with the Romans he can charge, once he pays the Romans, whatever he wants on his taxes. He might charge me one rate, the Zerancics another, Ron Parsons another, Mark Johnson another. He's just going to make as much money as he can. But there's clearly some unrest, some internal storm in Matthew, right? And Jesus sees him and calls him. Matthew follows this is amazing to be called if you're Matthew because in, in that time, a tax collector wasn't allowed to, be in, to come into worship in the synagogue. He's not allowed to really be in community. He's considered unclean. Nobody with any sort of self-respect would have friendships with Matthew. He's looked down by the Romans and dis disdained by his peers. So to share table fellowship with Matthew, to feast with him, was notorious. It would make you look dirty. But Jesus is not only going to associate with him, we read that he goes to Matthew's house and has dinner with Matthew's other sort of motley crew of pirates, tax collectors, and prostitutes for dinner. This is not an encounter we would expect Jesus to have. But as one scholar says, a healer must get his hands dirty. A healer must get his hands dirty. And a mission of salvation cannot be achieved by staying in respectable company. I love that phrase. A mission of salvation cannot be achieved by staying in respectable company. That means to save you and me, Jesus had to get with disrespectable company. That means when Jesus had to save you and me, he got his hands a little dirty. And Matthew's saying that Jesus redeeming me, a tax collector, is as significant as the paralyzed man being able to walk or the leper's skin being cleansed at the beginning of chapter 8. See, for Matthew, Jesus changed his heart and saved his life, just like he did the paralyzed man, or again, the leper, or the other miracles here in this book. And Matthew's healing is comprehensive. You can see why he writes about what it means to be a disciple because that's what happens to him. Jesus says to follow him. He says, okay. He brings Jesus to his house. He serves him dinner. And then he becomes one of his disciples. And then he puts together these teachings and this book on Jesus' life so that you and I will know it. And then we believe Matthew was martyred. This encounter teaches us that Jesus can save anyone. And again, perhaps this is the encounter you need this morning. Maybe you doubt Jesus would invite you to table fellowship today. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus before and you're here this morning. You'd like to know more about him. If that's true, I'd encourage you to talk to me or to Johnny or to Juan Esteban or to Corky. Or, again, maybe you're here and you can hear this for someone else you love. 
and you want them to have this encounter with Jesus. You know they think they're Matthew and that Jesus would never invite them. I mean, you could take them to this paragraph and explain this to them. No, no, no. Matthew was an utter reject in his society, but Jesus saw him and invited him and he followed Jesus. Third, let's look at the encounter in Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17. It's the paragraph right after the one about Matthew. This encounter helps us know how to pray for Jesus to work in our own lives. This is applicable to everyone here, this particular encounter. Because what he does is make new wineskins for new wine. Jesus is being questioned about fasting, which then particularly was a sign of religious seriousness. The Pharisees fasted a lot, and they made sure you knew about it. And Jesus is approached by John the Baptist's disciples who are on Jesus' team, really, but still have questions because he's not making sense to them. And in this encounter, he gives a primer on what it's like when we give our life to Jesus. How does this transformation happen? And it's worth hearkening back to the Sermon on the Mount a couple chapters earlier because he's been describing, I'm going to bring heaven to earth by making people like heaven. And I'm going to show you just what that change will be like. You're going to be poor in spirit, meaning you're going to know your need of God and of Jesus. You're going to have eyes for the lost. You're going to look for people like Matthew or the leper. You're going to be a place of forgiveness. We're actually going to be Jew and Gentile. It's going to be a whole new wineskin with whole new wine. Old wineskins had already been stretched to capacity by fermenting wine. You'd take a wineskin, put wine in it, and let it settle. And then you'd drink it. But while you did that, the wineskin would expand. And if you took new wine and put that into the fermented wine, fermented wineskin, it would burst the old wineskin. Jesus is saying, I am stitching new wineskins. I'm stitching the kingdom of heaven, back to the Sermon on the Mount, new forms of God's work, new kingdom of heaven people, different people than you can ever imagine, and I'm filling those people up to look like my heaven and my people. They're gonna look like Matthew. And I'm doing this not just on my own. I'm actually doing what my father does. If you think back to when we have been in Genesis 1, and we've touched on this a couple times in the last few years, what we looked at is how God creates in Genesis 1 is he does two things. First, he forms, and then he fills. He forms, maybe like stitching a wineskin, And then he fills. He forms the sky and the ocean and the land in the first part of Genesis as he's creating. And then he fills it with birds and fish and animals. God creates a form and then fills it with all his ingenuity. Jesus is just saying, I create in this new kingdom like my father. I too am forming a new wineskin stitching it together in you and with you together. And then I'm gonna fill it as I change you into being like me and like my people. Some of us could probably look back in seasons as our lives if we've walked with Jesus for a while and think, oh, I can can see where God did that to me, where Jesus changed me and then he began to fill me in different ways. I used to be an angry person and I'm not. I used to be a lustful person and I'm not. I used to covet and I don't. Some of the Ten Commandments we prayed earlier in this service. 
I used to not engage well with other people and now I'm kind. These are the ways God formed me and he filled me. This work sometimes takes time. Sometimes it's slow work to tan the hides, stitch the coverings, grow the grapes, ferment the wine, age it to perfection. But when Jesus is at work in your life, it is always gone going. You and I could go and stand at a vineyard and stare at a grape today, stay there, stare for two days. Still wouldn't see anything happen. But it doesn't mean it wasn't at work. When you give your life to Jesus, when you have an encounter with Jesus, this is how he works. He forms you as his people by filling you with new wine. Again, perhaps this is the encounter with Jesus you need this morning. You're at a place in your life with Jesus where you're like, I would like new filling. I would like God to stitch some new wineskins in the way I understand myself, my sense of vocation, my relationships, my relationship with God my sense of purpose for the future, some issues I have. And if this is the encounter with Jesus you need this morning, I especially wanna welcome you to Lent. Because what we often do during Lent is dedicate a form to God, particularly time, and ask God to fill it in a different way. And if you haven't made a commitment from now to Easter and how to use Lent, I'd encourage you to think about maybe doing that, asking God, Lord, I'm gonna give you Half hour in the morning before I go to work. I'm going to take Wednesdays off and fast and pray. I'm going to spend 10 minutes a day trying to be quiet. I'm going to journal every other day. Pick a form that you know you can do. Do not beat yourself up if you're not able to do it one day. And ask God to fill it in some way. That's what God does in Genesis. That's what Jesus is doing here in Matthew. And God is patient. And God is at work. Even If like a grape, you will not be able to tell. Lastly, I want to look at the encounter that Jesus has in Matthew 9, 18 to 26. This is our last encounter of the day. And this encounter simply shows us what deep faith looks like. What does deep faith look like? Have you ever asked that question of yourself? What does my faith look like? Do I have faith? Have you ever felt like my faith's not big enough for, compared to and didn't thought about people you know who had bigger faith? If I had great faith, what would it look like? Or if you had a friend who said, what does your faith look like? What does it mean for me to have faith in Jesus? I confess this is one of my favorite encounters in the entire Bible. I'd like to meet Peter's mother-in-law from Matthew 8, and I'd like to meet this unnamed woman, this unnamed courageous woman seen in other gospels too. She's bleeding. She's been bleeding for years. We read in Mark that she's actually been bleeding for 12 years. And in that society, it makes her like the leper in chapter eight. She is seen as continuously unclean. I want you to think for a second what it would be like to be described that way for 12 years. I am continuously unclean. Some of you may carry burdens, things that happened to you or that you did, where you call yourself that, maybe longer than 12 years. And this encounter will tell you Jesus wants to cleanse you and free you from that identification. In that society, if she touches someone, she renders them unclean for the rest of the day. She came here for church. 
You didn't know she was bleeding. You welcomed her as a greeter and you shook her hand. You're unclean the rest of the day. Imagine again the shame and isolation she's experienced. She is utterly on the margins. Even if you saw her and wanted to minister to her, you have to get over, am I gonna be unclean? How do I do that? She has a social and religious problem in addition to the physical one. She's not allowed into worship. So she should not touch Jesus. <laughs> but she also shouldn't even be in the crowd. Read that paragraph. It's a big jostling crowd. It's like people rushing to get into a stadium, beginning of a concert or a game. Everybody she brushes up against, she is making unclean for the day if they know that she's who she is. Everybody. She's making you unclean and you unclean and you unclean and you unclean. Her very presence makes us all complicit. But she reaches out and she grabs a hold of Jesus' cloak. This is, this is the physical representation in Matthew of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. She is so poor in spirit, she is so desperate, she will do anything to grab hold of Jesus. And if someone comes up to you and says, what does faith look like? This is what it looks like. And I love this because I think, oh, I could, I could do that. I could be desperate enough to just cling to Jesus. I would, I would take that encounter, I could do that whether my heart felt small or big. Do you have enough faith for that? She's not creating an NGO. She's not starting a business or giving lots of money. She's not helping lead worship or the prayer. She does not have all her intellectual questions answered. She probably has a ton of resentment to people around her. She is certainly not perfect and all put together before she comes to Jesus. But here she is. Her poverty of spirit is so golden, I'm surprised she doesn't go to heaven right there. Boom. Perhaps in your life, in the storm of your life, in your heart as a tax collector, all you have is just enough to be like her this morning, I will reach out to Jesus. Jesus is telling you in this encounter, that's enough. He affirms her faith. He doesn't rebuke her for making everybody unclean. He cleanses her, sets her free. Imagine if he had healed her physically, but not socially. She would have gone on her way but spent weeks and weeks convincing people she was no longer bleeding. So subtle but powerful that he turns and faces her. Again, in Mark, you read the disciples' exasperation because Jesus has been asked to go heal somebody else. Again, is, is this the encounter you need this morning? Can you, can you, when we come for communion, can you, in your mind, say, Jesus, this is me just clinging to your cloak all I have. It's the only faith I have.
This paragraph says, Jesus is all good. That's all you have. Or again, is there someone you wish you could pray, please, Lord, this, and put the name in there. I want this person to have just enough faith to cling to Jesus, to fight through the crowd on their knees if they have to. In a second, I'm going to pray. And again, I just ask you to think about these four encounters. The storm, Matthew, wineskins, and this woman. And say, Lord, here, here are these encounters. Maybe I trust. I don't know which one would apply to you, but I bet one of them does. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for Matthew's hard work to remember and write down and collect and group his gospel for us. And thank you for his courage to include himself in there. Lord, again, you love these men and women, and I wasn't kidding at the beginning when I said you have gifted us with the joy and care of these adults, and we offer them to you. You know which encounter means the most to us this morning. Maybe, Lord, the burdens of our heart are not about us today, but there are other people that we can see and would place before Jesus like we see men and women coming before Jesus here. So would you please hear and intercede for them? Maybe it's us. Maybe there's someone here who's never given their life to you, who's ready, who sees in these passages hope and a way. I pray that they will do that even now, offer themselves to you. Thank you again for your affirmation of this woman's faith. Grant us that kind of courage. In your name, amen. Show.